0: Hello and welcome to the Culture File weekly with me Luke Clancy and half an hour of audio excursions taking us from the walls of Derry to Berlin after dark from the rosy digital dreams of cottagecore to the timeline cleansing possibilities of a good old moan and we begin this time With an invitation for a stroll with the artist Janu Pritchard. Working with Derry's Centre for Contemporary Art, she's produced Olfacto Stroll, a downloadable audio invitation to practice what she calls deep smelling. The piece was first planned for a Derry walk, but in lockdown became a tour for headphones, leading listeners through the smells of wherever they are, as Janu Pritchard told Culturefile.
1: This smell walk is designed to bring your attention to your sense of smell. I'm sure there are other people using similar methods. I'm going to give you some tips to help you concentrate on what you can smell whilst you walk. As far as I know, I coined the term deep smelling, but it's taken from Pauline Oliveros, who's like a really renowned experimental composer, and she had deep listening. I'm kind of trying to draw a little bit on her practice, from take it from sound into smell and see what happens. It's like a very meditative practice. But she's using it then you know, to really focus her attention on what the sounds that she hears around her. Try to go through her compositions for or scores for deep listening, and then see what happens when I apply them to smell. Because she's not so firmly focused on producing sound, although of course she does or she did, but um, it was more about what happens when you listen to what's going on around you. Like, do you notice more? Do you have a more nuanced understanding of it? And then how did that influence what you would go on to create as a musician? And right now, I'm really just focusing with smell on how we smell and what we take in and how we react to it. Maybe instead of the environment around you, you can take a moment to smell your own clothes, noticing the smell of the fabric the detergent that they are washed in, cooking smells that might have attached to them, or maybe some perfume, deodorant or aftershave you're wearing. We have a very visual culture, and that's quite strong, or has been. With sound, it always seemed, even though it's incredibly atmospheric, that we kind of weren't paying attention to it as much. And I think with smell, there's something similar going on, that we don't pay attention to it until something goes wrong with it. And so that's kind of where my interest started to come in with how it creates an atmosphere and what what it adds to our sense of place. And they both do similar things, I think. If you're walking on the walls, do you feel like they keep the smells in or out? For me, actually, it's been quite interesting to be locked down and all I can really do every day is go for a walk. And because walking was already a part of my art practice where I would uh, go for walks and intentionally think about the things I could smell around me and make a map from those afterwards... Now, because I was going for a walk and I didn't really have, it was just to get out of the house. But I realised that I start to build up rhythms and I know that there are certain times of days of the day when I walk in a certain part of the city that I'm going to smell the big bakery. I know I can smell the the smell of that bakery at certain times of day if I go to a certain area. And then I've noticed a lot, now there's lots of different smells of uh, different kinds of smoke so people have their fires lit, so they could have a, a wood fire. It kind of tells you a lot about the city and its rhythms that I wouldn't have thought about before. So in fact, I kind of feel like I have a rich understanding of the city that I'm in. So they might not be really new smells, but the more you think about them, the more nuance that they have. Are you able to describe the qualities of what you can smell without naming them? For example, if you can smell the river, instead of saying it smells of the river, could you describe its smell in more detail? It's been a kind of a challenge because normally my instinct would be to maybe have an event with a, a group of people together and that we could all kind of go on a walk together and, and have a bit of a compare and contrast about what you smell at certain points and in different areas. But obviously that's not an option at the minute. You can access this sound guide of me talking to people or talking to you and put it onto your phone or your iPod or whatever you use and then put in your headphones. And you kind of take me for a walk with you and I'll give you little prompts as you walk about different things to think about in terms of smell. So I think it maybe makes it a little bit more intimate than it could be otherwise. But hopefully it's a nice thing. I had to kind of construct it thinking, what, what are the things that you need to do regardless of where you are? Or that I think you need to do regardless of where you are. You can apply everything to wherever you are. So yeah, if you're in your house, like the wall might be the wall of the house that you're in. And if you went outside into if you have a garden or the street, then you might know there's the difference, and that could also be really interesting as well. If you find a smell bad, is it because you think they signal a danger of some kind, or do you link them to something negative? I walk sometimes with another person, so it's part of my research. I work with a girl who's from Athens, but she lives in Belfast, and one of the things that she told me that she always smells in Belfast that she finds really interesting is um that you can smell manure but it's coming from like the surrounding countryside because just because of the geographical position of the city it's kind of in a basin with its harbour and then you have all these hills surrounding it that are all farmland and so and other people have told me the same that they can smell the countryside or what they term to be the countryside in Belfast in the city centre and I'd known other people say that they could smell it in certain parts of the city but I'd never realised that for other people it was all over the city so we do become habituated to smells. So I would never notice that smell, but of course someone who's visiting, for them it's really unique because it's so unusual for a city to smell that way. Maybe that's one of the reasons that smell has been less concentrated on because actually it's quite a slow sense. We have those like prostium moments where you smell something and it takes you somewhere immediately. And that's a very fast response, emotional response that we have with smells. But in other ways, because it changes very slowly in a landscape, in our day-to-day lives it's actually very slow and its rhythms are very slow but it does have like seasonal rhythms whereas if you think about sound or vision like they can change very quickly and have a much faster rhythm but I think with smell it's much slower and that slow pace is something that we kind of lose a lot at the minute because we're trying to do everything faster be more efficient and sometimes it's better to just be slower
0: Janu Pritchard there, and CCA's Olfacto Stroll's self-directed smell walk can be downloaded wherever you get podcasts. And why not record yourself as you walk? We'd love to hear about the smells around your place. Send your recordings to culture at ie. And next, we're taking up arms against the hustle culture or at least cheering from the sidelines while others do. Isabel Sloan is a culture journalist based in Toronto who's been chronicling the rise of an online subculture that goes by the name of Cottagecore and expresses itself in Instagram-friendly flowy skirts and rustic housewares. Escaping to the country is an old dream, of course, but according to Sloan, it's acquired new meanings in the Instagram age, as she told Culture Files' Anya Gallagher.
2: If you think of escaping like a thatch-roofed English storybook cottage in the country and try to think of all the activities that you'd do there. Maybe you'd pick some berries in the field outside. Maybe you'd spend some time reading in the garden. Maybe you would come across a little bunny hopping in the front yard. Maybe you'd make a pot of tea and just enjoy it. In the kitchen. Maybe you'd bake a loaf of bread or make a pie or put on a soup. Uh, these are all things that cottagecore glorifies. My name is Isabel Sloan. I'm a culture and lifestyle journalist based in Toronto. Cottagecore is essentially an aesthetic movement. It's really relegated to like the online sphere, and it's basically a community of people who are obsessed with very twee, pastoral, bucolic images of rural existence. This conception of what a quiet, slow rural existence consists of. So it's both an aesthetic and a community. I guess it's a community that congregates around the aesthetic. It's a community in the sense that, like, the people who are following a single Instagram account are a community. Like, they may not necessarily interact, but they've all sort of congregated around the same thing. It's really hard to quantify cottagecore as a lifestyle because the images of it are just so perfect. Part of my criticism of cottagecore was that it idealizes rural existence sort of all my problems would be solved if I could just live in this storybook cottage. But of course that's not true. Like you can never escape your problems no matter whether you're wearing like a gunny sacks, floral dress, drinking mushroom tea. (laughs) Real life will always seep in essentially. I don't want to like be judgmental of anybody and say that they don't have any idea. Because one thing that I discovered while writing it is that it is a form of self-soothing. It's not that these people don't recognize that, you know, waking up at 6am to like muck out the cow stalls is a thing that doesn't happen. It's not that they're not aware of that. It's just that they are looking at these images and are choosing to actively participate in this fantasy because it's something that's really helpful for them. They find it to be essentially like a balm for these quote-unquote difficult times, which is, you know, what we hear over and over and over again. Essentially, everyone has their own coping mechanisms, and like cottagecore is really a coping mechanism for people. So I wrote this story in March. I think The article came out the week before everything in North America locked down and then it just exploded, right? Because all of a sudden people were like stuck inside their homes and a lot of people lost their livelihoods and all of a sudden had these endless expanses of days to fill. And I think the concept of trying to enjoy a small life, enjoy an existence that isn't about going out into the world and being ambitious and driven it's just it's more about retreating into a small quiet existence and enjoying your life that way and I think that really provided a sense of hope for a lot of people. And as somebody who like does come from a farm, it's it's like a little bit ridiculous for me, for people to like not acknowledge like the amount of backbreaking labor that goes into maintaining a farm. And <laughs> so that's just funny to me. But I
1: guess um, there's like a bit of a danger maybe about it being quite unproductive
2: really. And maybe something about slipping back into more traditional gender roles. No, no, no. I think there's something radical about that. I think it's like a reaction against essentially forced productivity that like capitalism relies on to create wealth for the very few. And so by actively taking up arms against this hustle culture and cultural productivity, it's saying, screw you, I'm going to make some tea and just take that power back for myself. No, I'm not going to be making widgets for the boss or responding to emails at midnight. There's more to life than that. A lot of the people that I know or the people who are my age, millennials, really like define themselves by their jobs and the work they do. That really seems to be the most important thing. But this is just like an entirely new way of existing. It's essentially saying that none of that matters. I'm going to live for myself
1: and we're really seeing this whole phase uh very popular within the generation below millennials really isn't it
2: yeah totally from where i'm coming at it the majority of participants in the cottagecore subculture are yeah like super queer gen z fairy cottagecore lesbians yeah it's super queer like there's this whole thing i want a core girlfriend like i just want a wife to like you know bake my pies for and it, yeah it's, it's very sweet and it is sort of rooted in like quote-unquote traditional gender roles but if you're queer you're subverting it there's no man involved in these traditional gender roles so it becomes untraditional i guess
1: so it's an aesthetic where men are pretty absent
2: yeah, exactly. Like men are completely irrelevant to cottagecore, in my opinion. There are definitely some participants. Yeah, like cis men exist in cottagecore. It's it's a possibility, but it's just it's really not at the forefront. Men are truly an afterthought in the cottagecore universe. To where the sways with a moon. You can always lobby criticism against things that are escapist and suggest, well. Everything that's happening in the world is terrible. How dare you not face it and like want to look at it every day? But the realistic thing is that you can't force people to consume horrendous news 24 hours a day. Like, people are going to need a respite. People need something to escape into or to look forward to. And cottagecore really gives some people a reason to exist.
1: So basically, we need to rid ourselves of the men in our lives and uh, move to the country.
2: <laughs> if that's what you want, hell yeah.
0: <laughs> Isabel Sloan there, lighting out for the territories. Anya Gallagher was the reporter. "'Won't somebody think of the clubbers?' Any city that's positioned itself as a nighttime capital in the manner that Berlin has was bound to find the pandemic particularly distorting. Those famous big dark rooms filled with noise and panting bodies just wouldn't have the drawer they once did, even if they were open, which they're not. So, what to do with these iconic Berlin spaces? Irish writer and adopted Berliner Liam Cagney reports from post COVID Kreuzberg.
3: Like many others in Berlin, I've benefited from the club scene. Getting up early on a Sunday morning and cycling to the club to dance surrounded by weirdness is a miniature holiday. But now the club's doors are closed and the sector is economically imperiled. A few months back Club Culture Day was announced. The 3rd of October would be a day of support for Berlin's nightclubs. I was happy to hand over €15 to attend an art exhibition in a temporarily reopened club space I wanted to give something back. On a grey Saturday afternoon in East Berlin, I stood in a concrete yard outside the Kit Kat club. Over my head a sign said, Life is a circus. Under my coat I wore clubbing gear, a red and black harlequin top, leather wristbands, black joggers. I had worried I would be overdressed. In fact, I wasn't overdressed enough. Around me in a courtyard bubbling with anticipation, It was all svelte tartan kilts, skimpy lingerie, studded dog collars, septum piercings. At KitKat, you overdress by not wearing very much at all. Club Culture Day was an initiative of Berlin's Club Commission, a cooperative organisation representing the interests of Berlin's nightlife sector. A Club Commission report found that, in 2018, a third of all tourists came to Berlin because of the club culture, and that they brought the city a total of one and a half billion euros. No wonder Ireland's new sister outfit, Give Us The Night, draws on the Berlin Club Commission. The masked security guard pressed his temperature gun to my forehead, I got the all clear, and in I went, down the steps, through a cold dark tunnel past flickering candles and exposed brickwork. In Berlin Club lore, the Kit Kat Club is a grandee, satyr to Super Club Trezor's Hyperion. It's a friendly place and fun and its current home is a labyrinth of a building in the district of Kreuzberg. Its brand is, how to put it, permissiveness. The Kit Kat Club I suppose is an adult playground. There's a swimming pool and one room is decked out in fake medical equipment, anatomy posters, IV drips, a hospital bed. But in this club play is taken seriously. Kit Kat takes at his word the German luminary Friedrich Schiller, who wrote in his 1794 Letters on the Aesthetic Education of Man, Man only plays when he is human in the fullest sense of the word, and he is only fully human when he plays. Underground I passed candlelit corners. Memories arose of those nights of yesteryear. I recalled the dragon statue spouting fire over a dance floor teeming with bodies. I recalled a musician friend playing a gig while a Japanese woman in a sailor outfit cracked eggs over her body. I recalled a teacher friend, fuzzy haired, disrobing and leaping naked into the swimming pool. And I recalled being frog marched through the crowd by a bouncer almost thrown out for forgetting to leave my phone at the coat check. But now I began to feel guilty, because I was disappointed. Being in Kit Kat without the sweating crowd felt like being on a stage set with no audience and no show. Despite the beautifully surreal art organised by the promoters Gagin, being back in an unpeopled club only made me miss clubbing all the more. I bought a drink at the bar and sat on a leather sofa. Along with a dozen or so other socially distanced punters, I was in a room with red carpet and purple strip lights. A mistress with a leash led in a man on all fours with a leather dog mask. On a small stage, they enacted his canine kink. To my left, a screen showed a documentary. An Israeli man was talking about his BDSM relationship. He described his feelings of humiliation when, before his Israeli friends, a dominatrix demanded that he scream aloud, End the occupation! After an hour of Club Culture Day, I finished my beer and left. But this is not the end. Unbeknownst to myself, the Kit Kat Club and I were not yet through for 2020. A week before Christmas, I was staying at my partner's flat and having trouble sleeping. My breathing was shallow. The next morning at her workplace, my partner was asked to take a COVID-19 quick test. I got her text message around noon. Her COVID test had come back positive. Cue panic. Now I had to get tested. But where? I had just recently moved flat and I wasn't registered with the local GP. Where? Yes, where else but the Kit Kat Club. The Kit Kat, I soon remembered, had recently generously reopened as a COVID-19 quick test centre. You could show up and get tested without booking. Off I went, short of breath, walking a few miles to Kreuzberg to stand on that red carpet, not to dress up, or dress down, or revel, but to have a swab shunted up my nose. It turned out that I too was positive for Covid-19. I don't remember much about the two weeks that followed. They were a blur and were mostly spent horizontally. But I do remember having delirious dreams. Kind of a less dream that quite resembled Berlin club life.
0: there revisiting some old Berlin haunts. And finally, this time on the Culture File Weekly, the moment has come to lose our cool completely about every little thing. An approach with which Rob Long is well familiar, for if there's one thing that irks a TV writer more than not having a project in production, it's having a project in production.
4: This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. I am now in pre-production on a television series, and that's an unalloyed good thing. It means that I'm doing something that I love, producing episodes of television, on a show that I created. And that's what it's all about. Still, when people ask me, as they have done since the network press release, hey, are you excited? I never really know how to answer because, I mean, no, I'm not excited. There's a lot of work to do. I've got to start thinking up stories and working with a writing staff and making a lot of decisions. I've got to remember to email everyone and keep everyone informed about things. There's a studio and a network to work with, not to mention the rest of the large circus that television production entails. Everything has to get pushed through an approval process, the outlines and scripts and even the wardrobe. And each script goes through a bunch of rewrites, a grueling production week, complicated editing, and every step of the way you're peppered with notes and suggestions and criticisms from all sides. So when people say, hey, aren't you excited? I want to say, no, no, I'm not excited. I'm exhausted just thinking about it all. But of course, that's a ridiculous response. Of course, I'm excited. I've been in development for far too long as it is. I've written too many scripts that haven't been shot and shot too many scripts that haven't been ordered to series. The whole development process, the notes and the outlines and the changes and the dealing with the terrified, indecisive executives struggling to stay employed in their little cubby holes of fear. Well, talk about exhausting. That's what's really exhausting. Any writer in development will tell you that. You see, when you're a writer, you can see the bad in anything. Or more accurately, you can especially see the bad in everything. So being in development is the worst possible situation for a writer, aside from being in production. Writers are like farmers. They can find the bad news in any kind of weather. When it rains a little too much, farmers complain about the bumper crop, which means oversupply and collapsing prices. But when it rains a little too little, they complain about parched soil, no crops, lower income. And writers, writers are the same way. When business is slow, it means no money, no work, too much free time to daydream and web surf. But when you're working, when you sell a project, it means deadlines and phone calls and the tense panic of procrastination. And that's just writers. One subset, admittedly the most cranky subset, of an industry filled with complainers, my... Yoga class is full. My episode fees are too low. The leather in my car's interior squeaks. My kids' private school raised its fees. My office is too far from my parking spot. They ran out of gift bags at the event I went to. It's too dry outside. I can't get my iPad to sink. The organic market is too crowded. They're reducing my backend participation. The network is only giving us a presentation budget. I can't book a massage until Thursday. My iPod earphones irritate my ears. I have a cold, mediocre sushi. It's hot. Traffic in this town. The studio notes are stupid. Casting is stressful. My knee hurts. Look, I'm not pointing fingers except, you know, at myself. I tend to wear life like an itchy jumper, an itchy cashmere jumper. And so the struggle is, how do you keep going? How do you leave production and enter development, say, or really begin any new enterprise for anyone without starting out sort of pre-irritated? I mean, you know you're going to be irritated and exhausted and ready to pack it in in a million different ways, but that's no way to start, is it? A good writer knows this rule. When you're telling a story, keep the audience guessing until the very end. Don't let them know how the last act unfolds. We call it telegraphing the third act, and it's something to avoid. So even though you know how the third act is going to go, I mean, you're the writer after all, you have to write it like you don't. In other words, a good writer's job is to stop acting like a writer, stop knowing everything, and stop being certain about how it's all going to turn out. Instead, try acting like a member of the audience. Try looking at the new project with wonder and enthusiasm and a genuine excitement about the process. Instead of expectation and pre-irritation, cultivate a sense of curiosity, gratitude, joy, adventure. When people ask, are you excited? Try answering, totally, I cannot wait. Because there's a chance that it really will be fun. And that's it for this week. For Martini Shot, this is Rob Long.
0: And Rob will be shaking up another Martini Shot next time. But if you'd like to hear all of Rob's previous Martini Shots on CultureFile, follow us now on Twitter, at Pod, where we're just about to tweet a playlist there, did it again. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more Itchy Kashmir next Saturday at 6.30pm here on RTE Lyric FM. Till then, bye now.